Great. Well, thank you, Jill. Do keep the passage um, open in front of you. Uh, let me add my welcome to Ian's. It's great to have you uh, with us this morning. I think there are about 60-odd people, not odd people, but 60 or so people away at the youth weekend. Um, So uh, we are lower in number this morning. Let me pray for us as we come and look at God's word. Let me pray. Uh, Loving Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that we get to listen. And we want to pray, please, that you would give us tender hearts and ears this morning to hear you speak from your word to us. Pray please, both for me as I speak and all of us as we listen, that you might be at work by your Spirit in us for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by asking, I think, what is one of the most basic questions that we can ever ask in life, which is this, uh, who am I? Who am I? Really, the truth is that, that everything that you do, everything that you want to do, everything that you think you should do, flows out of your answer to that question, who am I? Who am I? You know, if, you, if you think of yourself as being an intellectual, you might identify as being a nerd, and it will shape who you are and what you do and what you think you should do. The same if you think you're a sporty type of person, you will always be wearing trainers or something. It will be how you live your life. If you're a musical type, that will shape how you live. Now, before we get into the kind of weeds of all of that sort of identity stuff and identity politics and the rights and wrongs of all of that, notice with me that the most fundamental answer to the question, who am I, is that I am human. I am human. But regardless of whatever else it is that I say after that, this is who I am. I am no less than a living creature born into this world, not by my own choice and not in a location that I decided, but I am a a person living and breathing, loving and working. I am human. Now, what I want us to see together this morning is that while often we think of the Christian life, I I think as it interacts with some of those identities that I started with, you know, that we're, we're a Christian like someone else who's sporty, maybe. You know, we're a Christian where someone else might be career driven. You know, we go to church, they do overtime. But incredibly, I want to show you from Romans chapter 5 this morning that actually it is the identity before that that being a Christian interacts with. What God says is that what Christ has done for us in the gospel is so fundamental, so transforming, so radical that not only has it changed those identities, but it's changed more fundamentally even what it means for you and I this morning to be human. If I can have one simple aim for our time together this morning, it's that at the end of our time in Romans 5, if you're a Christian this morning, that you begin to think of yourself in a totally different way. Not just about your hobbies and your preferences in a different way, not just your life goals and your desires. For sure, those things will follow. But more fundamentally than that, from Romans 5, I want us to question our whole selves. So we begin to understand that what's going on in the gospel is we're not receiving a ticket for heaven when we die. We're not just receiving like membership of a club called church. We're not just belonging to a place where we get to make friends or even just getting to deal with some of the bad stuff that we do. Rather, being a Christian is about being a radically different person with something so fundamental that it breaks that link that we have with Adam, 
Not so that we're no longer human or no longer value life, but rather so we have a, a totally different way of understanding who we are, what life is for in every facet and area. You know, if you're a Christian this morning, you haven't simply taken a journey into life. You haven't just walked across a bridge that's shaped like a cross to get to God. You, you're not walking on a beach where someone kind of just picks you up and carries you every now and again. No, if you're a Christian this morning, you are a whole new person. Now, let me see whether I can show you that from Romans chapter 5. And I want just to start by uh, sort of walking through the verses. So keep your eyes down on the passage and let's uh, walk through them if we can. In verse 12, Paul starts to build on what we saw last week, saying in effect that the reason that justification by faith meets the test of ongoing sin and suffering and death is because of what he is now about to say about Christ being like a new or last Adam. But before he gets a chance to say that, his opening sentence sort of breaks. I don't know whether you noticed that as Jill read it. Jill said, is there any tricky words in the reading this morning? I was like, no, but it does kind of jump around all over the place. So uh, verse 12 doesn't really get finished. Therefore, he says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because they all sinned, he kind of leaves it hanging. You'd expect him then, wouldn't you, to say something about Christ, but he doesn't. And the point is, I think, although Paul is going to compare and contrast Adam and Christ, he doesn't want you to do that too quickly and miss important details. So notice the details with me. Adam is the father of humanity and is the spreader of death and sin. For the reason that when he sinned, his sin was, was not like any others, but of a different kind of category. Adam's sin in the garden was of a different category, not because of its moral horror was greater than any other sin, but rather because of who he was. We are told in verse 14 that he is a type of the one to come. In other words, in a way Paul will get to in a moment, Adam was a type of Christ. Not because of the good he did, but because the bad that he did had consequences that were bigger than just for him. In other words, Adam, like Christ, is a head or a leader or a representative. So at the end of verse 12, Paul can say that although Adam was the one who broke the law of God in the garden, there is an important sense which in Adam all sinned. Think about it like this. Adam, along with Eve in the garden at the beginning of creation, are there as representatives of the human race. All of humanity are tied up in Adam, not just biologically, but more morally and spiritually. All of humanity is on probation in the garden with this great hanging question over them. Will humanity, will Adam, and will humanity in Adam, will they submit to God and his rule? Will they obey him? Or will he, like the fallen angels before him, reject God's right to rule and face the consequences of his rebellion? Now, perhaps this idea of representation is not too strange to us. We're, we're used to this, aren't we, from watching the World Cup over Christmas. You know, when Lionel Messi steps up to take a penalty, all of Argentina's hopes and dreams are tied up in Messi, aren't they, at that moment? And that's sort of what's going on here, in a way. All of humanity is on Adam's shoulders as he's in the garden. There's an obvious distinction, though, isn't there? Because not only he's not taking a penalty, but really... Likewise, it's not a matter of skill for Adam, is it? Adam is not there hoping that he will score a goal or that he'll have the skill required to obey God. It's rather a matter of his will. It's about what does Adam desire. 
And we're told in Genesis 3 that he desires to be like God, to know good and evil. And so he reaches out and he eats. And Adam and in him humanity inherit his guilt and his verdict. So verse 15 says, many die. Condemnation is brought, verse 16. Death reigns in Adam, verse 17. As an aside, one of the things that Paul points out is that this inherited guilt and condemnation explains the death of those who, unlike Adam and Eve, had no law to keep. If you look at verse 13, he wants you to know that in the period between Adam and Moses, people still died, even though the Ten Commandments had not yet been given. And they died not so much as lawbreakers, because no law had yet been given, but rather they died because they lived in a world where, verse 14, death reigned. Not because of their law-breaking, although they were sinners, but they die under Adam's curse because of Adam's sin. Now, before we go on to the similarities between Adam and Christ, Paul wants just to make some more distinctions. So notice verse 15, the free gift received in Christ is of a totally different order. Why? Well, because one is about justice for sin, isn't it? And the other is about grace as a gift. You know, in Adam, humanity get what they deserve. In a sense, it's a, it's a covenant of works, if you like. It's a do this and face the consequences, or don't do this and face the consequences. It's that kind of deal, isn't it? It's a covenant of works. You keep your part, and God will be faithful to his part. But in Christ, it's different. It's a covenant of grace, abounding grace, as he calls it in verse 15. It's a free gift. So one is as by nature of our birth into an obviously guilty humanity, getting what we deserve from Adam's sin, The other is an undeserved gift to be received by faith. He says it in a slightly different way in verse 16. One is the result of one sin, Adam's sin, which brings condemnation, deserved condemnation for the one sin, the sin of our representative. The other, Christ's justification, comes after many sins by many people, including you and I, and it flows as a gift, not a consequence. And still, for all those differences and distinctions, still Adam and Christ are similar. So verse 18, look down at verse 18. He picks up his broken sentence from the end of verse 12 and he finishes it off and he says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So here it is. Adam brings sin and death. And Christ Jesus brings righteousness and life. And they do it in the same type of way, by being the head of, or the source of, or the leader of a kingdom or a covenant. Adam being the head or the source of all humanity in the covenant of works in the garden, our unavoidable father, if you like, the leader of us all. And Christ being the head and the source of all of his children in the covenant of grace. Head of those who by faith will receive his free gift of justification, secured not by their obedience, but by Christ's. Now, just to finish off so that we look at all the verses, in verses 20 and 21, the law is added. The commandments are given to Moses, not so much to condemn humanity. Humanity's condemnation was already sealed, wasn't it, in Adam. Rather, the law was added to count sin, to grade sin, so that the horror of human sin could be valued and measured and seen, and so that God's grace could also be measured and valued and seen as the great treasure that it is. Now, that's a really 
kind of quick run through the passage, and I'm sure I've not answered all of your questions. You can come and find me at the door and ask me some more later. But let me give you just three thoughts on how this applies to us and what we need to go away thinking about. The first is this. Death and judgment is inevitable and inescapable. This is somber, isn't it? This is the somber reality of the passage. You and I, sat here this morning, have absolutely no choice about our connection with Adam. We have an unshakable, unavoidable connection to Adam. You know, you might decide to answer the who am I question in any number of ways. In fact, that's exactly what we're encouraged to do, isn't it? Being ourselves is the highest good in our world at the moment. And stopping someone from being themselves is seen to be the greatest evil, even though no one really knows what the limits of that should be, although I think instinctively we all know there should be some limits. But really, Paul says, in some ways, all of those answers are secondary answers. Those are secondary questions. The great truth, the bigger identity behind all of them is that it is impossible for any of us to unhuman ourselves. We are flesh and blood and belong to Adam. And because of that identity, we share in the fruits of his fall. Not only in a broken world full of sin and suffering, but also in a sentence of death hanging over our heads. Regardless of how good or bad or noble or wicked I am, the point is not just that I would have done what he did, although that's probably true, and it's not even just that I repeat his mistake in countless ways every day, although that's true as well. Instead, actually the point is in an unbreakable way, I'm connected to Adam, I am in Adam, and I share in his fate, me and all of humanity. You might be sitting here going, that's not fair, is it? I'm an individual. Judge me on my sin. The things that I've done wrong. Don't hold me to account for Adam's sin. That's his responsibility, not mine. There are obviously two problems, aren't there, with that. One is that that's not going to save you, right? We're, We're just as guilty. But also the other problem with it is just simply not how creation works. You know, God put humanity on probation in Adam, and if you and I will share in his humanity, we will share in his guilt and its reward in death. You know, we might not like it, but we cannot deny it, because 100% of all humans die. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, Romans 5 is meant to be a bit of a wake-up call to the reality of your true identity and your own future. We are born in a race, condemned to die. Death and judgment hang over us from the moment that we take our very first breath. And probably I want to suggest that the reason that that doesn't bother us from moment to moment is not because it's not true, or not because it's not even obvious. It's true and obvious, isn't it? The reason it doesn't bother us from moment to moment is because we have become very, very good at forgetting about it, distracting ourselves from it, so much so that we are surprised when it comes even though we know the truth is it comes to everyone. You see, the truth is that the only hope for humans is a new and final Adam. The only hope is a better Adam. The only hope is someone who can include you in the merits of their righteousness instead of the inclusion in the condemnation of sin. Someone who can rescue you from death by including you not in a condemnation to death, but in a resurrection to a new life. And of course that person is Jesus Christ. God, 
united to humanity in the person of the Son, so that in his humanity, believers might be united to him and share in his work, dying with him in spiritual union on the cross and rising with him to new Holy Spirit-filled and empowered life, a new birth to new creation. And that new Adam, we're told, can be ours by faith. You and I can join in his new humanity by putting our faith and our trust in him. Imagine a new destiny, new resurrection life, if only we will come and trust in him. And so I need to ask you this morning, we're a small group, aren't we? But I know most of you, but let me just ask you, because you know your own hearts, I don't know them. Have you done that? Have you experienced that? Do you know what it is? Not just to think that Jesus is who he said he was, But have you experienced what it is to receive new life from Christ, to be included in him? Have you understood that the depth of your problem is so, so deep that it requires a new creation kind of solution? You come to Jesus not just for a bit of inspiration or help for you to get on with your own life, but have you come to Jesus like a a poisoned man runs to an antidote or as a dying man runs to a doctor? So we need Christ, don't we? Well, that's the first point. Secondly, we are not the individuals that we think we are. Oh, you've touched on this um, already. But let me just try and spell this out for a moment. We, we live, don't we, in an age of what is called radical individualism. You know, we said already we are encouraged, aren't we, to be who we are, to find the real me. Stuff the rest of the world... Don't let anyone or anything get in my way. I am going to be the real me. Authenticity. But a moment's thought makes us realize that's just not really how life works. Really, all the things that I have a choice about are really only the icing on the cake. The cake is given to me and set before me. I'm not really just an individual. So while I do things that I'm personally responsible for, while it's true that what you've seen already in Romans is that God will hold each and individual each individual to account for what they have done in final judgment. Still, the truth is that God's dealings with me come down to me through another, through a leader or a head or a king, and my choice is Adam or Jesus. And so that now, as a Christian, I am to understand that my new life is in Christ. It is united to him by faith. It is granted in him for me to be a new creation. That is now my identity. So that the life that I now live is not, it's not that I've tacked Jesus on to my old life. So that when I consider being a Christian, I, I have to kind of consider the Christian bit when I make some life choices. No, rather actually my Christian life is the life of Christ, living in me by the power of the Spirit. Galatians 2 verse 20 puts it like this. Uh, Paul says this is what the Christian life is about. Galatians 2 verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is, if I felt my Christian this morning, this is not really my life to live. This is Christ's life in me. I live my life by faith in him. Knowing that my in Adam is dead and dying, and my in Christ is alive forevermore. What does that mean in practice? How does that work out? Well, it means, doesn't it, if you're a Christian, 
then living to please God is not about trying to sort of whip your old self into shape, but it's about being who God has made you already to be in Christ. It it means that your, your struggle with sin, my struggle with sin, is not so much, Steve, you shouldn't do that anymore. Call yourself a Christian, you shouldn't do that anymore. It's not that, is it? It's, it's more, Steve, that's no longer who you are. It means that the great demands of the Christian life, you know, the, the command to take up my cross, the command to deny ourselves, the command to love our enemies, the command to pray for those who persecute us, the, the, the command to take the gospel to the nations, the command to, to give generously, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances. Those are not commands that I whip my courage up to keep done for me and my glory. Look at me, I'm a great Christian, everybody. It's not that at all, is it? I do them in the power of the Spirit as he enables me now by faith to live the life that he has already given me in Christ. So I read my Bible, I pray, I fast, I come to church, I listen to God's word, read and taught. I sing it to others like fuel for my new life. Just like self-discipline and accountability and repentance or listening to the kind rebuke of a friend are a part of continuing to kill off the dead Adam that I might live the new life that Christ has given me. Finally then, the Christian life is new creation. I know all these applications are really saying the same thing. I'm just going to own that. Right? They are all the same point, but coming at it from slightly different angles. The Christian life is new creation. I think if you... If you want you to go away with anything ringing in your minds, this is what I want you to go away thinking about. So if you zoned out, come back. This is the thing that I think you need to know. Whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not this morning, what Paul wants you to understand is that the Christian life and the life of faith is on the level of new creation. Just just look down at verse 14. Let's just underline this a few times. Notice that Adam is a type of Christ and not the other way around. It's not so much that Christ is like Adam. Adam is not the priority. Christ is. Adam plays a smaller role in pointing forwards to how Jesus will save people. So that my Christian life, my new creation life in Christ, is more fundamental to me than even my mortal humanity that I receive through Adam. In other words, as a Christian, Christ is not tinkering around the edges of my life, helping me to meet my aspirations, giving us something to do on a boring Sunday morning when all of our young people are away. He's not giving us parenting tips. He's not giving you a a few pointers to how to keep your teenagers off weed and keep them out of prison. He's not showing you how to achieve your potential or how to change the world. He's making you new. New. Imagine... The Lord Jesus has promised to make all things new. All things new. So that when he returns in glory, in great power, to rid the world of sin and death and suffering and to remake the world, do you know when he comes to you and meets your Christian life, he won't change a thing about it. Why? Because your Christian life is already glory ready. Let me try and illustrate this uh, for a moment and try and tie in some of what we were saying last week about sin and suffering and death uh, with what we've been looking at this morning. Uh, Imagine for a moment that that across the road someone is building a, a string of beautiful new houses. 
you know, obviously not on Sefton Park Meadows, but somewhere else where we don't really care that they're building new houses, right? And you've been around and you've seen the show home. Show home was stunning. You've never been in such a home before. It was beautiful. Everything was absolutely perfect. There were no, no cracks in the walls. There's no dripping taps. There's no leaking toilets. There's, there's no damp. There's no peeling paint. And so you decide, listen, I've seen the show home. I know that how brilliant these homes are. I'm going to buy one of these houses. So you buy a new house. And you receive the deeds and you've got the keys. But for the moment, just for the moment, even though you've got the deeds and the keys to this new house, you're still living in the old one. The one with the peeling paint and the cracks in the walls and the damp rising up. But, but let me ask you just for a moment, as you, if you imagine that, if you've got the deeds and the keys of this new perfect house, how do you feel about the damps and the cracks in your old house? How do you feel about them? How do you feel if someone breaks into your old house and smashes a few windows and graffitis on the wall? How do you feel about that? Well, you'd be upset, wouldn't you, for sure. But you're not going to be devastated, are you? Why? Well, I've already got a perfectly new house. A perfect house. An absolutely, undefeatably brilliant, no damp, no cracks, perfect house. I've got it already. I've got the keys. I've got the deeds. I'm moving out of this one. It's already yours. So no damage in your old house can take away from your joy in the new. You know, if anything, it just makes you look forward, doesn't it? Oh, I can't wait to get out of this. I want to go live there. Now that's it here, isn't it? Justification by faith means that we don't need to worry about sin or suffering or death. Why? Well, because in Christ I'm a new creation. Where sin, suffering and death will have nothing to do with me. Eternally. The old is gone, the new has come. So sin and suffering and even death cannot touch my new life because it's resurrection life, it's new in Christ. And if I would grasp that, if I would take hold of that in my mind and my heart and understand the greatness of what God has done for me in Christ, well then I'm liberated from a whole pile of worry and stress about what's happening to my old Adam. I'll be free, won't I, to rejoice in the Lord to live a life for his praise and his glory, not in my strength, but in the strength of the new life he's given for me and empowers me to live by the Spirit. We were in Adam. We're now in Christ. Praise him. Let me pray. Let's just take a moment just to think and ponder, maybe just to pray through some of the things that we've considered together. Oh, loving Father, how brilliant it is that you're not tinkering around the edges with our lives, but that you've made us new people in Christ. Thank you that what we've experienced in him is a taste today of the glories of the future. Thank you that this status of being justified by faith comes to us through belonging to Jesus and sharing in all that he has done by faith. Thank you that when he dies, I die with him. When he uh, rises, we rise with him to a new Holy Spirit-empowered life. We pray that we might increasingly grasp that, that it might shape how we think about our Christian lives and the joy with which we live them. 
we recognize that for the moment we still drag around the old Adam with us. We're still in the old house with its cracks and its leaks. And so we pray, please, that you would help us to keep persevering and longing for the day when this new life which we already have will swallow up death forever and ever and ever. Keep us going till that day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.